Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Inc. Podcast. As we've been promising for the last few episodes, we are finally beginning our series on the history of the Margaret Hudson Program. We are very lucky to have impromptu interviews that Elisa Bell did with the first executive director of the Margaret Hudson Program here in Tulsa, Lois Harvey Gatchel, before she passed away in December of 2018. Elisa Bell took her out to lunch on a multitude of occasions, and during some of those lunches, interviewed her about her time at the Margaret Hudson Program, as well as all the other amazing work she did here in Tulsa. She was the first program coordinator for the National Conference of Christians and Jews, now called the Oklahoma Center for Community and Justice. She was the first executive director of the Community Relations Commission, now called the Human Rights Commission for the city of Tulsa. They talk about her work with NOAP, which is now called the Healthy Teen Network as well as how she also helped start the Native American Community Center and the Committee on Indian Community Relations. But what's most important to us here at the James Inc. Podcast was about her time as the first executive director of the Margaret Hudson Program, which started in 1969, where she served as the executive director for 11 years and then retired and became the consultant and advisor for national organizations concerned with adolescent parenting, including the Joseph P. Candy Jr. Foundation. I hope you enjoy these interview clips and I hope you learn as much as I did. Please remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Okay, Mrs. Gatchel, tell me about the beginning of Margaret Hudson. It was during the LBJ administration that the Model Cities program was uh, legislated and cities were invited to make proposals for things that would improve their conditions. And of course, one of the things that uh, we had it was labeled the war on poverty. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of social programs that fit that description. And there were uh, some women in the community who recognized that there were a lot of girls dropping out of school because of teenage pregnancy. They weren't allowed to keep in school in those days. And the only uh, recourse they had was homeschooling, which most of them didn't avail themselves of. So a woman at Planned Parenthood and one uh, lady in the... uh, City County Health Department and the head of the volunteers that were in the community got together and wrote a proposal for a grant. And that was the beginning of the Margaret Hudson program. And they named it Margaret Hudson after a woman who had pioneered maternal and child health for the health department in the county. And it gave it a name without a stigma. <laughs> and they schools were persuaded to furnish uh, part-time teachers. The health department furnished some nurses for instruction and counseling. We had some social workers, and uh, they chose me as the first director. They set up a board, and... Uh, Gradually, we got organized. We, Our first year was at the old YWCA downtown across from the Mayo Hotel. The building was torn down subsequently, mm-hmm. and the Amoco Oil Company built there. So we were there one year, and it was the only year that our 
girls have had a, had a swimming pool, <laughs> which they enjoyed for that one year. After that, it was a series of locations, a church, an old school, different places. You never quite know where the Margaret Hudson program would end up, depending upon what the public schools offered you. But right away, our enrollment began growing, and most of the high schools contributed some students and it would depend very much on the counselors that were there, whether they would kind of lead the girls to in that direction. And the idea was to hold them in school at their grade level, and in addition to their academic work, provide the counseling and health care that were so important to their condition. So that's the way we got started. So how many girls were there the first year? Well, we had three half-day classes, and I would say probably about 60. I really would have to look back at the records, but it seems to me it grew more rapidly than we anticipated. And what year was this? Oh, you ask me such hard questions. <laughs> I would have to search my memory. I don't really, uh, it was in the 1960s, but I can't tell you exactly. I think they officially listed at 69. Is that right? the things that I've seen. So. Well, it was uh, early on. And through the years, it's had many locations and many changes of personnel. We in line, uh, relied so much on volunteer nursing. We had some from the Red Cross, for instance, and the ones from the health department. But eventually we had to write grants for those positions because we certainly had to have them on a regular basis. And um, same with social workers. And we tried very much to have a follow-up program for when the girls left the school. We would try to follow them and see if they were having adjustment problems, parenting problems, home family problems, um, birth control problems. <laughs> and um, all of those things, you know, contributed to their eventual success as parents mm -hmm. and as students. Do you remember the names of those ladies who were involved in the beginning? Well, I know that Lena Bennett was the head of the volunteers, and she also became president of our board. And then the doctors, she moved from Tulsa soon after that. That was from the health department, but she was very instrumental in the proposal writing. And Estelle Antell was the head of the Planned Parenthood at that point. And she, too, left Tulsa. So, you know, it, it was a changing cast of characters <laughs> all the time. I believe there's one teacher who was, and probably still is there, and that was the, uh, you mentioned her, she taught the parenting classes. Uh, Mrs. Hill. Yes. Mrs. Morrow. She's mm -hmm. now Mrs. Hill. Uh-huh. What was your greatest challenge 
and the thing that you're most proud of? Well, I'm very proud of one of its graduates whose name... Elisa <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Alisa> Bell, <laughs> who uh, went to college with two babies and on welfare and got a degree and a nice job and eventually married and has a nice family, got a master's degree, and has been nationally recognized as a great success. And But there have been others along the way that I remember one little girl that her father was so strict and so embarrassed that she should become pregnant in high school. And he said absolutely she could not keep that baby. She was not capable of it and that she must place it for adoption, which she did. But, you know, it kind of shattered her. And But she went on and did as he wished that she would graduate from high school. About two years after that, she came back to visit the program and very proudly announced that she not only had graduated, she had gotten married and had a baby. <laughs> so she was very proud then of being a parent in the order that her father wished. Mm-hmm. There were many stories like that that were heartwarming, and uh, it was so good to, when they would call me and say, I've got a job, mm-hmm. or I've graduated. I just uh, felt really pleased whenever that happened. <laughs> Did you start NOAP? Well, I was with the original group that started NOAP. We, we had begun to contact other programs because we were neophytes. And it was interesting to find out how other people did these programs for teenage pregnancy. And it was always a variety. Some of the school systems were the sponsors. Some were social agencies. A few were independents like Margaret Hudson. As we contacted each other, we became kind of friendly. And I know that one of the activities that we did at Margaret Hudson was spend a weekend in Albuquerque visiting that program. Theirs was a school-sponsored program. And we somehow got a hold of Jeannie Lindsay in California. Her program was a school-sponsored program. And um, she was the one that began publishing books for use of teenage pregnancy programs. Then we had, I, I won't remember all of the people that were involved in the beginning, I remember we met in different towns at our own expense because um, we needed each other. We needed the exchange of ideas and the kind of resources that they provided to us. So that just grew into a movement. We said, well, let's make it official that we're going to be the group that uh, exchanges information and help for teenage pregnancy programs and work on legislation that we need. And we did that nationally. We 
pounded the marble halls of Congress, acting like we were a great big organization, <laughs> and calling on our representatives and congressmen. Tell me about your first job again. Well, when I moved to Tulsa, my first job was with the National Conference of Christians and Jews. We called it NCCJ. I was program director, and it was a part-time job. My children were pretty young, and um, I wanted to be home when they got home from school. But it was a very interesting job because um, Christians, Jews, and uh, it was integrated racially and religiously, and they were interested in keeping the lid on an explosive kind of situation which was brewing. What, what year was that? Well, it was probably 58, 59, 60. And then the civil rights struggle began, and the, um, the planning that NCCJ made led to the recommendation to the city that they establish the Community Relations Commission, which will handle complaints of discrimination and unrest. And um, I was the first director of that. Now, it since has become the Human Rights Department of the city. But in those days, it was a part-time job, and we worked on such things as um, public accommodations and fair housing and other kinds of things that were very serious problems at that point. And that was just by getting the two sides together. And sometimes we would meet in clandestine situations <laughs> so that the media wouldn't be involved. <laughs> but it was very interesting and very important, and we had some very good leadership on both the black community and the white citizens. And that's what kept the lid on in Tulsa. For, when the other uh, communities were having real unrest and violence. We had demonstrations, and um, but they were peaceful. Then we had, we made some really good, you know, the public accommodations law, and I can't remember all of the things that we considered accomplishments, but I was proud also that there was nothing going on for the Native Americans, and we decided to have a, a committee for uh, Indian Affairs because they're more and more were moving into the city and they weren't getting services that they should be, you know, be eligible for. So we um, organized a little committee and that was a challenge because some of us really didn't know how to work with them. We were not acquainted. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a different um, ethic they very often they would be late, and they their um, meetings would last overtime, and then they would huddle in the corner and make their comments and de decisions. It was they they didn't respond well to a formal kind of situation. However, out of that later on grew a, an independent 
kind of activity that they themselves fostered. And that was good because then they found their voice. Mm -hmm. So what women in the early teen pregnancy struggle years, what, what women were your role models? Well, okay, so then from that job, I was approached by some women who had drawn up a proposal. This was during the days of the War on Poverty that Lyndon Johnson's administration had started. And there were model cities proposals going in for funding of innovative programs that would change the situation for local citizens. Well, these women, one was the doctor that was in the, uh, what we called VD clinic in those days, um, where she was seeing pregnant kids come in for service, and the lady who ran Planned Parenthood was seeing this population, pregnant, early pregnancies of school children, and let's see, there were three groups, Planned Parenthood, Health Department, and Lena Bennett was the head of the volunteers program, let's see, what was that called? Anyway, she was the third party that was seeing pregnant girls that were dropping out of school and nothing good was happening for them. And all three of them were concerned and they got their heads together and drew up a proposal for funding. And it was granted and they needed to have somebody to run the program. <laughs> and I was approached to do that. And so that was my next job. So were those ladies your role models? Yes, they all were so sincere in their compassion for the people involved and also for their foresightedness in seeing that the community had the resources, but it was a matter of putting them together and applying them to this situation. And that, so the schools were involved for provi providing teachers, the health department, provided nurses, and the um, actually our first employees was only me and a secretary and a part-time uh, assistant. That was three employees to begin with. And of course we had no idea how many girls would respond and be included, and it was way beyond our expectations. We had three teachers who taught part-time and uh, had three classrooms to begin with. And then they taught half a day and then the rest of the time we would have nurses classes for prenatal health care and counseling. And that was the way we started out. I hope you enjoyed that impromptu interview as much as I did. Uh, we will be talking to teachers, former teachers of the Margaret Hudson program in following episodes. And please remember to rate and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts and to subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. You can like, 
James Inc., as well as Podcast for Good on Facebook and Twitter and all the places where people normally are. Thank you so much. 